Hello everybody, it's Greg Lois and today we are talking about permanent disability and settlements in New Jersey. Uh, our topics today are going to be how exposure is evaluated, when you should expect your attorney to give you advice about exposure, how to choose a section 22 or an order approving settlement and a section 20 lump sum dismissal, and just a little bit about reopeners and some best practices because that's the thing we really want to avoid in this jurisdiction. So uh, let's jump in. Uh, we're going to talk about when we evaluate exposure. I'm going to talk how we evaluate exposure. I'm going to talk about what exposure is, right? So what is the right number, Greg? How do I know how I'm not, I'm not overpaying? Uh, and I want to give you as much practical advice as I possibly can. Now, this is a completely live webinar, so please feel free to type your questions into the uh, box. I will answer as many questions as I can at the end. And I will read your question out loud so the group knows what I am responding to because they can't see your typed in question. I will only say your first name. I will never say your last name because I never want to embarrass anyone. But I do want to encourage you to ask as many questions as possible because even if you're thinking to yourself like, oh, this is a silly question or a dumb question, I promise you there's somebody else who's watching this either on video, uh, playback, or live with us here today who probably has the same question you do. So please feel free asking us those questions. All right, let's dive into our first big topic, which is how do we evaluate cases for exposure in New Jersey? And when should we do that? And how are we doing it? Okay, so let's talk about this. Let's talk about when we do it. First, you should always expect that when the case reaches specific milestones, your defense counsel is going to give you some uh, advice about what their exposure is likely to be. Now, the first milestone for us is intake. When a new case comes into Lois Law Firm, we will provide you with a comprehensive legal action plan and budget within seven days. That means we're gonna look through everything we have. In New Jersey, that typically means medical records, MMI, typically does not mean a medical expert report. We're gonna look at the type of accident, we're gonna look at any uh, personnel files, any records you've provided to us, um, any documentation of the injury, and we're gonna come up with our best estimate of our uh, exposure, and we're gonna do that within seven days of the new case coming in. Now the case is gonna go off on its normal case life cycle and things are gonna happen. So for example, the uh, both sides are gonna get expert reports or exams. Well, before and after those expert reports, you should expect defense counsel to come and give you an advice about, hey, here's what the value of the case is currently, Here's what we think is going to happen after these expert reports, and then confirming what they expected happened actually happened. Every time your adversary gives you a demand, and you know, every time opposing counsel contacts me with a demand, first I have a duty to uh, relay that demand onto my client, but I also give them advice. I say well, this demand is you know, crazy, it's great, it's low, it's in the ballpark, it's close. You know, I'll give advice at the time the demand is made. The next time we're going to give advice to clients is going to be at conferences. Uh, we're going to court, uh, there's a hearing, there's a motion, there is a pretrial conference with the judge of compensation. Well, something's happening. Uh, it's up to us to tell you, here's what this impact is gonna be on the case's overall exposure and likelihood of settlement. And then of course, every time the case goes for a pretrial conference or a pretrial memorandum is actually executed, readying the matter for trial. So this sounds a little complicated and I wanted to create sort of a flow chart uh, to show hey, here are the steps that a typical case goes through, and these are the moments when a settlement exposure analysis should be happening, and then here's how cases close. And, and I started writing this flow chart out, and I was getting pretty into it, and then I realized I was running out of room, so that's why it kind of like makes that right-hand turn and goes down the side of your screen there. 
but the steps that cases go through are all pretty similar, and at these are the moments when you should really be getting a very good estimate of overall um, exposure, and then uh, some making some decisions about what to do next. So, uh, once maximum medical improvement has been reached in your New Jersey workers' compensation case, that's a great moment for an estimate of exposure to take place. Now, typically, the case is going to get exams done, medical expert. Uh, reports. You know, we sometimes call these independent medical experts or independent medical evaluations, but they're really not. These are each side gets their own paid experts. Uh, you'll find that there is a wide disparity between the numbers found by the two evaluating physicians. And the reason for that is, well, they're paid by different sides. These are really not independent or neutral. You know, sometimes in other jurisdictions, we think of independent medical exams as impartial. They are certainly not neutral or impartial in New Jersey. These are paid experts. Um, so that's another opportunity for you to communicate with counsel and for counsel to give you advice about, hey, here's what um, the two physicians found, here's what the judge is likely to find. And you're going to see that there's a little bit of an art to reading these medical expert reports because there will be a very wide disparity between what our evaluating physician finds and what the uh, claimant or the petitioner's evaluating physician finds. Uh, your goal, of course, is always to elicit a settlement demand. I always like to remind people, we're the defense. We don't make demands. We make offers, right? The other side makes demands. And then, of course, I make counter offers to them. Um, but when they make a demand, it's really up to counsel to make sure we give you a good analysis. Here's what the demand was. This is in the ballpark. This is not in the ballpark. You know, here's something we can work with. Here's why this demand uh, really should be brought before a judge so that we can communicate with the judge and get a conference going. But all that is going to be part of that negotiation that happens. During negotiations with opposing counsel, you should see that valuation number coming towards, you know, what uh, your defense counsel estimated as an amicable exposure range. And, you know, the way these negotiations take place between the parties. Uh, now, more and more and more, I'm doing negotiations with opposing counsel over email or in text, uh, where in the past, so much of my defense negotiations used to take place in court. Well, in New Jersey, very few of the New Jersey 15 workers' compensation courts are allowing or encouraging in-person proceedings at this point. Uh, and um, this is November of 2022. Uh, currently, there's only a few jurisdictions or a few vicinages that are requiring it. So, for example, right now, um, we are required in Hackensack to make appearances. Mount Arlington, for example, is requiring appearances. But the other locations are not. And for that reason, so much of our negotiations is now being done either over the phone, email, text, uh, you know, not face-to-face -face like it was maybe two or three years ago. Now, negotiation strategy and style, that really is going to depend on the adversary. But certainly, you should expect your defense counsel to know who they're dealing with, right? And by that, I mean, we know, hey, this is a adversary who always comes in real high, but then settles at a more reasonable place. Or this is an adversary who just makes one demand, and then if we don't meet it, they go right to the judge. You know, so you've got to know who your opposing counsel is. And in a few slides, I'll talk about the things that we consider when we're kind of considering um, the local um, sort of politics or the local peculiarities of who you're dealing with and how that impacts the overall exposure. Now, if the sides agree on the settlement, that's pretty straightforward. You would do an immediate put-through. Now, New Jersey is really great. It's a flexible state in terms of if you reach a settlement outside of court between the two parties, uh, every single settlement in New Jersey needs to be put through on the record or approved by a judge of compensation. But it's a great state in that the judges are generally pretty flexible about allowing us to add on 
uh, cases, even if it's not cases not listed for hearing or proceeding. So you can contact the court and say, Judge, good news, we just reached a settlement. Is there a possibility you could add this to your calendar this week or this, you know, tomorrow? And generally speaking, you'll see most judges are very amenable to doing that. So if it's the end of the year, now this is November, right? And you're trying to get settlements um, resolved and money in claimants' hands before Christmas, very possible to do now because you can then, after you settle the case, immediately contact the court and then get that put through done. What happens if we can't agree? Um, you have the opportunity to conference with the judge of compensation, right? Uh, you can bring a judge into it and, you know, the judge will generally in New Jersey spend time effort to actually get familiar with the medicals, to read the expert reports, and then to give you their opinion as to uh, what they think the overall settlement value is. So that's great that you have uh, very active judiciary, very active judges who will conference most cases and give you their opinion in terms of overall amicable settlement value. Um, I'll also say that if we're in court, if the case is listed that court uh, for that day, usually when we reach a settlement, you could put it through that same day. Again, more and more of our courts in Jersey have gone virtual. In fact, the majority of them are, which means many of our settlements are now proceeding by way of affidavit instead of the claimant taking the stand and testifying immediately. And so that's kind of putting a little bit of a delay on these things. Again, if you can agree, the case could be put through immediately. If not, conference it with the judge of compensation. If the opinion of the court cannot be um, accommodated or the judge says, you know what, I agree with uh, petitioner's attorney, this case is worth you know, $200,000 and you, know, you really only think it's worth $30,000, your next opportunity is to pre-try the case. And what that means is every case before a trial can begin has to be pre-tried, meaning a pre-trial memorandum has to be executed between the parties. And that pre-trial memorandum, we used to call it the green sheet uh, because it's literally on a piece of green paper. Each party has to list out all of the documents and evidence they intend on producing a trial to support their position. And so the magic of the green sheet is that it's kind of another decision point. You know, if you go to court and you're, or you're negotiating with your adversary, you really can't uh, reach a settlement. And then your adversary says, all right, let's go to court. Let's talk to the judge. You can go to the judge and talk to the judge. But if you can't reach settlement, then you still can't compromise or you're still too far apart. Your next option is you could pre-try the case, uh, execute a pre-trial memorandum, which really just readies it for trial at the next listing. Why is that good? Well, it's another decision point. It's another opportunity particularly from the defense point of view, where, hey, I'm getting some input from the judge. The judge has to write their recommendation on the pretrial memorandum, and that's useful for us because I can bring it back to you, the client, and here's a, a little bit of a bigger view of that pretrial memorandum, and I can say, hey, client, here's what the judge said. Uh, what do you want to do? Now, let's say we can't agree, and maybe the judge doesn't have all the information in front of them that would help them uh, inform their decision. Guess what? You can still try the case, right? Just because the judge has weighed in doesn't mean you can't try the case to conclusion. Trials in New Jersey are non-continuous, meaning very slow. They don't happen, you know, you don't start a trial on a Monday and just keep going Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. A non-continuous trial means you start the trial and then usually get adjournments of not just a couple weeks, but often a couple months in between trial proceedings. This is good because it gives us lots of decision time in order to reach an amicable resolution of the case. So those are the decision points that you go through in a typical New Jersey case. And as you come through these milestones, again, these are an opportunity to speak with counsel, to take some guidance from us, uh, for us to get feedback from our clients about what they want to do. So 
you know, when I think about these big milestones, I think, well, the first big one is both sides have their exams. The next big milestone I think is, hey, now we're starting to talk about settlement. There's some, a settlement demand, there's some money being demanded. And if that can't resolve the case, our next opportunity is to go conference it with the judge. And if that doesn't resolve it, we can then pre-try and try the case, which really gives you a lot of leverage and a lot of milestones as we work towards trying to reach a negotiated settlement of a matter without having to go through all the time expense of a full trial proceeding. So that's the when you should be getting settlement um, advice and exposure recommendations from counsel. But let's talk about the how. How are we coming up with these dollar numbers, right? Because we're reducing these complicated medical issues down to dollars and cents. And what are we doing? How are we basing that? Well, New Jersey does have scheduled loss of use. They are enumerated body parts. Those are your fingers, your toes, hand, arm, foot, leg, and eyes. Uh, there's also hearing, but I didn't include that in here for some reason. And there's a very handy-dandy chart that you can use. I publish it in the back of my handbook each year that you can go to that shows you the week value and the uh, weeks can then be multiplied by the uh, temporary total disability rate to come out with a total exposure value. Well, that's complicated. Nobody really does that anymore. Nowadays, we all use this Oscar computer program that's been published by the uh, New Jersey Department of Labor. And the website address is there on the screen for you. It's courtsonline.dol.state.gov nj.us slash Oscar Calc. And everybody, when we talk about case valuations, everybody's using Oscar uh, as the system for calculating it, including the judges of compensation. So even though we've detected there are some issues with Oscar calculations, we recommend that everybody utilize them. Um, Oscar does have an issue with pre-2020 hand and foot valuation. So those still have to be done um, carefully. And you know, I would go to counsel for those. The way this uh, calculator works is you simply put in uh, the valuation that you've reached on any specific enumerated body part or scheduled body part. It will do the math for you based on the uh, petitioner's average weekly wage and the year of injury, and it will completely calculate those dollars for you. And where those valuations are coming from are the two expert reports. Now, besides the fact that the expert reports uh, come in uh, you know, these are hired guns. They are not independent. They are not neutral. They are not uh, impartial in any way. Over the years, we've all developed sort of a rule of thumb on how to develop the exposure. So, you know, some of these things we're all going to know, hey, an operated knee is usually 25% of the statutory leg. But those are, one, are very simple, straightforward on a scheduled loss of use case. We should be able to give you a very good idea of exactly where that case is going to come to in regards to exposure. So figuring out the percentage and the dollar value is not that hard. Again, you've got that Oscar calculation, but then you've got to take into consideration the jurisdictional factors, right? Because you're in New Jersey, right? So I want to take into advantage things like, is there a pre-existing disability? Remember, you get a dollar for dollar credit for any pre-existing disability to that same body part regardless of whether there's a work injury or not. And that's an interesting contrast to other states. You know, there are other states that say, yeah, you can get a, a credit for pre-existing disability, but only if there was a prior work accident or work recovery. New Jersey doesn't say that. New Jersey says you can get a credit for a pre-existing disability regardless of whether or not the person had a work accident. So I've had cases where the person has a shoulder claim and then we've shown that, hey, you know what? You did injure your shoulder. You had, you had a rotator cuff tear, but guess what? 
you had a rotator cuff slap lesion in high school from football, and we're going to get a credit for that as well. So you can go very far back in time. New Jersey also allows for voluntary tenders to serve as a credit against exposure, although the uh, changes to the statute over the years have really eroded that. A voluntary tender is just voluntarily paying an advance payment of permanent partial disability. And in the past days, you used to get a credit uh, and there would be no attorney's fees taken against that credit. That has now been eroded. There's been legislation that changed uh, in the last few years that now says if the claimant is represented and you issue a voluntary tender, you do not get a holiday from the attorney's fee. So you really got to be thoughtful about which cases you're going to deploy a voluntary tender in. New Jersey also has a concept called stacking in which multiple body parts will be stacked on top of each other and this can create a much higher overall exposure. So that's to be something you have to be very mindful of. Very, you know, sort of lame cases where you've got uh, a, a minor back sprain and a toe fracture and a finger laceration can all of a sudden stack up to be very high exposure cases just because there's multiple body parts involved. Uh, we also did consider a Section 40 lien in New Jersey. New Jersey has a wonderful reimbursement subrogation statutory scheme. As long as you assert your right to reimbursement, you will have a protected right to reimbursement. Uh, so is there a potential for risk transfer to reduce your exposure? New Jersey also has a second injury fund, right? We're one of the few states that still has one. And so in the case of a totally disabled claimant, you really should be thinking of is there a potential for me to get contribution from the New Jersey State Injury Fund? And in a future presentation, I'm going to go very carefully and clearly through what that kind of exposure reduction can happen when the second injury fund contributes in your case, but it is very significant. And the last thing I like to talk about is the fact that New Jersey does have a, a wide range of variation based on which judge you're in front of and what venue you're in. So, when we look at New Jersey, you can see this little graphic that I've put up on the screen. You know, New Jersey has 15 hearing points, and there's roughly eight in the north, and there's roughly seven in the south. Now, that red line that I've driven, uh, I, wrote, I wrote across the state, that's roughly the Raritan River, okay? Now, sometimes people say there's a thing called Central Jersey. Let me tell you something. I've lived here for 47 years. There is no such thing as Central Jersey. There's North Jersey. And there's South Jersey. There's no mid-Jersey. That doesn't exist, okay? Now, if you live in North Jersey, you're very different from someone who lives in South Jersey. Let me explain why. If you live in North Jersey, and I grew up in North Jersey, uh, you watch New York City uh, cable stations, right? Your nightly news is New York City news. When you say, hey, we're going to go out tonight in the city, you mean New York City, right? That's where you're associated with. You root for the Giants and the Jets, or the Mets or the Yankees, because you're a North Jersey person, all right? Now, if you're in South Jersey, and this is, again, everywhere south of the Raritan River, you watch Philadelphia TV channels. You identify as a Philadelphia or, or South Jersey person, and when you say, I'm going to the city, you mean Philadelphia, or maybe you mean Atlantic City, right? You have a totally different outlook. You root for the Phillies, right? You root for the Eagles. It's a different place. And what we've discovered is when you, when you really cross into the South Jersey jurisdictions, there is a different valuation for the exact same injury. And in fact, it's interesting uh, that cases are worth a little bit more in South Jersey than they are in North Jersey. And the difference can be perhaps 10 to 15% on the same exact injury. And that's really gonna be based on who the judge is, what the venue is, what the type of injury, but in general, I tell most of my clients, you know, when you have the same exact injury and it occurs in South Jersey, it's gonna be worth just a little tiny bit more 
than it would be in North Jersey. And you gotta be thoughtful about all these things and all of these factors that we're taking into account when we're thinking about what the overall exposure is to a client. Now, there is a normal range um, you know, for uh, most of these injuries. Most cases fall within a range. I've provided this to most of my clients and you can ask me for it, I'll provide it to you. But of course, this is gonna vary by the venue and the judge and the specifics of the individual accident. What's good and unique about this jurisdiction is judges do look at the underlying medicals and they will look at the underlying medicals. So if you have a case where the person got not much medical and they're getting a giant number from their medical expert, that's a case where I'd say, judge, take a look at this case. This person only had three weeks of physical therapy. Their doctor says they have an 85% disability. This stuff doesn't match. And the good news is you do have some um, some buy-in from courts and the, and the judges will actually look at these kind of things and say, okay, you're right, that, that really should reduce the overall valuation. Uh, I've written a guide on this, which I'm very happy to share with people, but we're expecting you not to rely on this in a legal sense, in a uh, presidential or procedural setting, but this is an informal guide that we've written to how your typical case is evaluated for exposure in New Jersey. All right, let's talk a little bit about New Jersey settlement types because there are two main settlement types that you can sort of mix together and mix and match uh, to make sure you can resolve your case in the way that is most advantageous to you, the client. The first way we can resolve cases is pursuant to Section 22. Okay, These are also called order approving settlement. A Section 22 settlement is a case closure. It is final, but it is unfortunately subject to a reopener action under Section 27. A settlement paid under Section 22 or order approving settlement is subject to this reopening opportunity and the petitioner has the right to reopen their case within two years of the last payment of compensation. These settlements are paid out over a course of weeks. You can't accelerate the course of weeks, so you've got to pay this out over the course of weeks that's published in the New Jersey schedule. So that means you could settle a case today for let's say 30% of permanent partial total which equates to 180 weeks of compensation. And let's say that's paid out for $900 a week. So for the next 180 weeks, you are gonna pay out this person $900 a week. And then at the end of that, the last payment that you make, 180 weeks from now, right, which is nearly four years from now, they then have two more years to reopen this case from the date they were last paid. So these reopeners are problematic and something like one in five cases to one in four cases in New Jersey are now reopener cases. So these are not great because these are generally going to come back. Uh, what happens is when the person is getting their, their settlement paid out, when it's finally paid out, they get this lovely phone call from their attorney and says, hey, you see you got your last payment. Good news. Are you ready to reopen your case yet? And that, that's what happens next. They reopen the case and unfortunately have to start all over again. The other challenge to Section 22 settlements is that medical stays open. Uh, so this is good because we don't have to worry about Medicare as a secondary payer, but it's bad because medical stays open. So you still have this ongoing exposure. Uh, the cases are closed, but only about a third of them are truly that stay closed. About two thirds of them come back as reopeners. And so generally speaking, you don't want to do a Section 22, but unfortunately you sometimes can't do a Section 22. And that's because there has to be a jurisdictional basis for a lump sum dismissal. That would be a section 20. A lump sum dismissal or section 20 settlement, now I'm looking at the right-hand side of the screen here, is not subject to a reopener. It can never come back. You pay them once a lump sum payment and they go away. 
The only downside to a Section 20 is that you may have to take Medicare into consideration because you may have a secondary payer obligation or situation. But in general, we try to steer every case towards a Section 20. It's closed, it's final. The only cases you don't want to put into a Section 20 are where the claimant is still an active, ongoing employee. Because you don't want to give somebody $100,000 and say go away forever and have them come back to work tomorrow and then have the exact same injury or claim. Because they will, right? Because there is no re judicata or prohibitive effect of taking a Section 20 to then coming back to work the next day and making the exact same claim. So uh, let's talk about what a Section 22 is, or sometimes called order approving settlement. Remember that a judge of compensation in New Jersey can never force you to settle, okay? That's something you're choosing to do. This is a voluntary settlement. They can't make you do this. The downside to a Section 22 is it is subject to a reopener. Another downside is every single settlement in New Jersey has to be approved by a trial judge, right? Uh, there are no out-of-court settlements or dismissals, and so that's going to introduce a little bit of delay. It's going to introduce maybe a little bit of risk. Um, the, because you can't do an out-of-court settlement or dismissal. The Section 22 award is always paid over weeks, and that is by statute. The judge cannot relax that. Now, there is an opportunity in the statute for the judge to order a commutation, which would be an acceleration of those weeks, but in practice, those are exceedingly rare. Uh, you know, very few are uh, ever approved, so it's very rare that you'd ever see a commutation. Every single award of compensation under an order approving settlement or section 22 will have an amount per week that has to be paid times the number of weeks and a gross total award. Now the judge also has discretion uh, in apportioning petitioner's attorney's fees, but typically they apportion them uh, between the parties. The petitioner's fee cannot exceed 20% of the award or settlement. There is no maximum fee since 2015. It used to be $45,000, but now there's not. There is a maximum fee for the petitioner's medical experts. They can only get $600 for each one of the reports that they give. And the judge will typically apportion 60% of the cost of the petitioner's attorney fees to us, the employer, or the respondent, which means that you end up paying some of the attorney's fee for the, claim, for the claimant's actual representing counsel, uh, which seems kind of annoying, but it's how the system works. So how does this work? Let's say the claimant got a $10,000 award. The petitioner's attorney's fee will be 20% of that, or $2,000, with 60% of that paid for by the respondent. If the petitioner had one expert report, the judge will usually split the costs between the parties. So in other words, we would pay an additional $300 each. Um, and the judge would usually uh, charge the cost of court repairing services to the respondent as well. So it just means that your exposure is, has to take into consideration the fact that you're actually paying for the petitioner's attorney's fees as well. But we should, again, be advising you of that when we're telling you what your likely exposure is. Now the other type of settlement we just talked about is a settlement with dismissal. That's a section 20. These are my favorite. These can never be reopened. And I also want to remind people that the judge can never force or bully you into a section 20 settlement. Every section 20 settlement has to be approved by the judge and there are no out-of-court settlements or dismissals. So clients often say, Greg, why don't we section 20 everything? And the answer is I would but there is a judicial bias against approving a Section 20 in every single case. Now, there are some legal requirements uh, for the judge to approve a Section 20. The judge must be satisfied that there is an issue in dispute between the parties. Uh, generally speaking, those issues could be jurisdiction, causal relationship, nature and extent of permanent residual disability, or temporary disability. 
Well, pretty much every case that I've ever defended has at least one of those issues in it, right? The most common issue is the nature and extent of permanent residual disability, right? That's enough for, to, for the judge to find that this case is appropriate for a Section 20 lump sum dismissal. In other words, there's that issue that we can point to. Unfortunately, there is a judicial bias in this jurisdiction against lump sum dismissals. A judge of compensation will typically allow a, uh, a order approving settlement um, when a case is first brought before the court and then allow a Section 20 on the reopener. So when the case comes back for that reopening, the person says, oh, my condition has gotten materially worse, the judge will say, okay, sure, did it. This time, Greg, go ahead, give him $5,000. Let's do a Section 20. Let's close this case forever, right? Hybrid settlements. Okay, so you could do, you could do uh, both an order approving settlement and a Section 20 in the same case. Two separate orders are entered at the time of settlement. And usually I'm doing this in cases where I don't want the claimant to have a reopener right, for example, on something like a psychiatric claim uh, or some de minimis claim that I, just, I go, oh, this is going to turn into a problem down the road. So the compensable accepted body part, we will resolve by way of order approving settlement or section 22. And then the body part or the condition or the illness that we're disputing or saying, hey, this really isn't related, uh, we will do that by way of section 20. Now, Reopeners are the big downside to settlements in New Jersey, and in particular, the downside to Section 22 settlements. We're defending about, about a quarter of my caseload, I would say, is reopeners, because that's what happens in this jurisdiction. You resolve a case by way of order approving settlement, and then it gets reopened. And you know, my goal is to try to stop that. So there's some ways to do it. When a reopener comes in, we're going to file our answer. You know, our standard process here is to do it within 24 hours. We will serve discovery on our adversary. I do have to provide information to the, both the court and opposing counsel as to how much permanent disability has been paid. So I will come back to my client and say, look, I need to have some information about the status of payments from the prior judgment that's being opened. And I'm also going to ask my client, was there any temp paid since the entry of the prior award? I'm hoping the answer to that is no. Was there any medical authorized since the prior award? And again, the answer to that should almost always be no. Uh, I'm gonna ask my clients for the payment ledger so that we can figure out exactly how much has been paid. I will do the math, I will file that answer for you, and we will take into consideration any accrued weeks uh, that are going to impact uh, whether or not this case is open or closed. But I'm really looking for a jurisdictional limitation to this case being reopened. Uh, so, Best practices on a reopener. First, send me your payment ledger so that I can figure out exactly how much has been paid and if the jurisdictional limitations have not been invoked. Let me know if you paid for any authorized additional medical care since the entry of the prior settlement. And let me know if you're currently still paying this person. Those are the things I need to know from the client. Our advice, our best practice is do not authorize any need for treatment exams. This is a common tactic that we see in this jurisdiction. Uh, where the claimant settles a worker's comp case, knows they're gonna try to reopen it, maybe blows the reopener period, and then comes back to the client and or the employer and says, hey, could you just send me back to that doctor just once for a one-time exam? You know, my shoulder's hurting again, I just wanna have it checked out, I'm sure it's nothing. Once you authorize and provide that need for treatment exam, you've just re <laughs> recreated or restarted that reopener period, so be thoughtful. The other thing I've seen in the past is an idea that, hey, you know what, when the claimant's been injured and they've, they've now filed their reopeners, let's send them right to the medical expert. Let's return them back to the treater to see if the treater thinks that they need any more treatment. Never do that. That's a risky move. I would always advise 
to send the claimant immediately to the medical expert, right? Uh, do not send them back to the treater because that opens yourself up to additional risk in these cases. That the treater might say, hey, there is a need for continued treatment here. And again, uh, that's going to expand or increase your exposure. So uh, thanks for joining today. Let's talk about our key takeaways. Um, first, when we're defending a workers' compensation case, exposure should be continuously evaluated. And you should be constantly advised as to how the actions we are taking are impacting and should be reducing your overall exposure. Now, you can settle a New Jersey workers' comp case via two methods. One of them is the order approving settlement, Section 22. But the uh, way we like it is the Section 20 settlement. That is a lump sum dismissal that cannot be reopened and it cannot be appealed. All right. I'm going to go over to the question and answer, and I'm hoping that there are some interesting questions for me on this topic. Okay. Miriam says, hey, Greg, would you explain what happens with IMEs that are canceled if there is a cost? Yeah, so if the claimant doesn't appear for our IME, we're always going to get nailed for a fee, whether we're using a scheduling service or even if I'm directly scheduling the IME for you, which, by the way, I think is best practice. When that happens, um, there's going to be a fee associated with it, somewhere between $150 and $500 fee. What I do is I turn around to my adversary and I say, look, we're going to reschedule this exam, but you have to understand that at the time of closure of this case, I'm going to ask for your client to reimburse us for this missed IME fee. And I will get the money back from them when I settle the case. Uh, and we'll also, of course, you're going to take a little bit of thoughtfulness about like, well, why did they miss it? You know, if they missed it because they just forgot, like, I'm sorry, I'm taking this money back from you when I settle the case. Uh, but if it's, I missed it because, you know, say I had some terrible personal tragedy or something, I'd say, okay, maybe it would be more reasonable. Generally speaking, in New Jersey, when someone misses an IME, um, you should, a, tell them that you're going to seek reimbursement for it, but then B, immediately reschedule it. Because it's really not until they've missed two IMEs that the judge of compensation will agree with your decision to invoke Section 19 and stop paying them. Because remember, under Section 19 in New Jersey, uh, if the claimant repeatedly miss medical appointments or medical exams, you can cut off temp or you can stop benefits. So that's sort of an option that you can have for self-help. Okay, Miriam asks a second question. Greg. Are there experiences where the court considers there have been excessive IMEs? All right. So I think really what you're talking about here, Miriam, is when we do doctor shopping, when we're going through IME doctor to IME doctor and in a short period of time. You know, the judges don't really like that because it does feel like doctor shopping to them. I don't care because I know that IMEs are not impartial, they're not neutral, and they're not independent, right? These are medical experts. These are hired guns. These are paid testifiers. So. This is not like other jurisdictions in other states. For example, I practice in New, in New York. In New York, IMEs are really independent. Uh, I'm not allowed to interfere with an IME. I'm not allowed to control and direct it. I'm not allowed to prep my IME. I'm not allowed to talk to my IME outside the presence of my adversary. That's a real independent exam. In New Jersey, these are not independent. These are hired experts. They're, we're all using the same ones. Plaintiff's attorneys are all using the same five or six doctors over and over and over again because everybody knows the kind of reports they're going to get. Again. Think of these as expert reports. Do not think of them as IMEs or independent medical exams. You know, another way you could think of it is think of it as a DME, defense medical exam, but it is not independent, it's not impartial, and that's okay. And so when the judge says to me, hey, Greg, you've gone through three IME doctors, they say, yeah, I'm going to keep going until I get the opinion I want. You know, that's fine. Uh, but the judges will consider that job, doctor shopping, and that will impact the credibility of the evaluating physician that you're putting on the stand. So that is something, you know, for you to be mindful of. 
All right, those are good questions. Thank you very much, uh, Miriam, for asking them. Thanks for everybody else for joining. I know this was a little longer and a little bit of a different format, but I am trying to put more uh, content into these um, uh, webinars so that uh, hopefully we have a better discussion around what we're doing here in New Jersey. I hope everybody has a great week and a great month. And if I, I guess I will speak to you right before Christmas, but uh, have a Merry Christmas. Um, I hope everybody had a happy Thanksgiving, and we'll see you next time.